All right. Amen. Thank you very much. Good morning to you all. If you would turn to Romans chapter 7. I'd like to complete today this little taste of the men's retreat, which we started a few weeks ago. And obviously we wanted to especially focus at Easter time on the death and resurrection of Christ. And it fits very well in light of what Paul says here. But I'd like to complete today just a few thoughts on what uh, Romans seven fourteen through 25 has to say to us with regard to the good news for us as Christians, which is very easy for us to focus on and appropriately to focus on the death and burial and resurrection of Christ and what Christ has done for us, and yet fail to make the connections to what that means for us as believers in terms of what he's also done in us and has promised to us in light of what he's done for us. And so I want to focus on uh, this today. And so let me read for us verses 14 through 25 of Romans 7. And then we'll look at uh, some ways in which we can apply it to our lives. In verse 14, Paul says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, But the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. This is the word of God. Well, what I'd like for us to think about today in light of this passage is that the foundation of what you do is who you are. And we need to make that connection in our minds. Secondly, your sin does not define you. Thirdly, your suffering does not define you. Next, you have a fight and so do others around you. And then finally, you must grow down in order to grow up. And at the end, we'll talk about the fact that all of this highlights the fact that humility is saying what God says is true of us, whether that's good or bad, whether that's um, in the good times or in the bad times. Uh, It's what God says is true that's most important. And finally, when we talk about who we are, who you are and who I am, uh, it's determined by who we trust. It all comes down to faith and who 
or what our trust is in. And so I'd like for us to think about these things and hopefully we'll see by God's grace how they apply. And I hope it's encouraging to you as it has been for me to think about these things in some fresh ways. Obviously, in our society, identity, who we are, is a huge issue in our day and time right now. And you could argue that the idea of self-identification, where I determine who I am and what I am, has become, you might say, a primary plank in the agenda of our society, or I would say in the godless agenda of our society, society that it's crucial that everybody gets the right to um, identify themselves. And the reality is that it is very important how we identify ourselves. And I do think that's why uh, in Satan's strategy to deceive people, identity is a key issue. And so when you think about things like Matt Walsh's um, documentary on what is a woman, uh, which was very controversial, but it basically asked the question of how do I define myself? Uh, that was a big issue because a lot of women feel like now they can't tell you what a woman is, unfortunately. Or you think about something even more recent with uh, Dylan Mulvaney and Bud Light. You've probably seen a little bit about that. Dylan Mulvaney is uh, a man who identifies as a woman, and Bud Light has... Um, which is a beer company, has used uh, an association with him to try to promote their product, and it hasn't gone terribly well. Um, But all of these things uh, raise the question, why would a, a beer company be so concerned about something like that? And in a sense, want to promote something like that. Well, it all goes back to the idea that We're in an age where the old is not sufficient anymore. I don't think we realize somehow how much evolution has impacted the way people think. And people have embraced the idea of evolution in all kinds of ways. And one way they've embraced it is by saying that what we used to believe must not be the best. So we have to find new ways to think about ourselves, think about life, and the new is always better than the old. And to hang on to the old is just to be stuck in our evolutionary process. And so therefore, if we're going to make progress, we have to be progressive. You've even heard that term, I'm sure. It's the idea of leaving behind the old definitions of men and women, uh, old definitions of what's right and wrong, and let's accept new definitions because that's what progress is really about. And we should feel very um, compassionate toward those who are truly struggling with issues of identity and issues of temptation and all those things. There should be compassion from us as Christians. And yet we still should stand against wrong ideas. That we're not against people, but we are against lies. Because we know that lies enslave and lies destroy It's the truth that sets free, and that's why as Christians we fight for the truth while showing compassion to people. And it's very important that we recognize that those two things can and should happen at the same time. And so if we ask the question, does it matter if people misidentify, identify themselves wrongly? 
The answer is yes. It makes all kinds of differences. Now, if I misidentify God, that's a big issue. If I get the, the true God wrong, I'm in trouble. If I misidentify Jesus and say that he was just a man and not Lord and Savior, that's a big deal. If I misidentify the people around me and I say that they're not worthy of life, then that's a big deal. If I misidentify myself, if I think I'm a bird and I go on the fifth floor and I try to fly, it has consequences. Or if we allow boys in the girls' bathrooms because of misidentification, it has all kinds of consequences in people's lives. And so it makes a difference. Um, When I was in college, there was... um, a kind of mini movement within Christianity about the whole issue of who we are in Christ. And there was a magazine that came out at that time, and there were certain preachers that would preach on who we are in Christ. And one of them uh, was um, Peter Lord. Peter Lord actually, early on in the days of Coast, actually came, I think, and spoke at Coast. And uh, Norm, who was one of the pastors here at Coast right before I came, He came out of the church that Peter Lord was in, in Florida. But Peter Lord, um, who was a pastor, told a story about turkeys and eagles. And the point he was trying to make in the story, I'm not going to retell the whole story, but it's basically the idea of a a baby eagle that somehow falls out of the nest and gets involved with a family of turkeys. And so the eagle is raised as a turkey and is told he's a turkey and thinks he's a turkey until one day an owl uh, basically says, who, who are you? And asks the question of who he is and basically says, you know, you're not a turkey, you're an eagle. And so if you think you're a turkey, then you assume that there are certain things you ought to be doing. If you think you're an eagle, you look at life a little differently. And that was the point of the story is that How we see ourselves and what we believe is true of us is really important. Well, if you look again at uh, Romans chapter 7, let me just highlight some things in this passage before we get to the application part. In verse 14, he says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. When it says the law is spiritual, it means the law is not simply about external issues. It's not simply about what you do. It's also about what goes on in your heart. It's spiritual. It's not just physical. He also says, but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin, which is an amazing statement in light of Romans 6. So if you read Romans 6, Paul says that we've been set free from sin. But here he says, I'm in bondage to sin. What he's saying is, if you read it all together, he's saying that Sin no longer rules and reigns in my life like it used to when I was an unbeliever. But now as a Christian, sin is not my master, but sin still lives in my house. And the aspect of me that's called the flesh is completely ruled by sin. It is uh, thoroughly evil and sinful. And therefore, there's a part of me that is still in bondage to sin which the bible calls the flesh in verse 15 he goes on to say for what am i for what i am doing i do not understand which is an amazing statement from the apostle um for i'm not practicing what i would like to do but i am doing the very thing i 
hate. He's describing the reality of the Christian life in which it's very complex, that there are issues in terms of what we're doing or not doing that we could actually say with Paul, I don't even understand exactly why I'm doing certain things or not doing certain things, but it is related to this reality in me that's still enslaved to sin. And so ultimately, the the idea of what I do or don't do as a Christian, and I'm talking about Christians when I talk about all these things, the, the reality is that what I do or don't do as a Christian isn't simply the issue of what I want to do. It's the issue of a winner. Which desire is going to win the day in any given moment? Because he describes in this passage conflicting desires and wants. He goes on to verse 16 to say, But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. Now, he says, as a Christian, there's nothing good in me. But then he qualifies it. That is, in my flesh. My flesh is thoroughly in bondage to sin. That, that sinful part of me that still remains after becoming a Christian is thoroughly sinful. But he doesn't mean there's nothing good in him at all because the Holy Spirit, he is in him and he is perfectly good. And there's a new man that we all are in Christ that's being conformed to the image of Christ that is good as well. But he highlights the fact that he says the willing is present in me. I have a heart to do what God wants me to do, but the doing of the good is not, meaning I still do not have within myself the power to do all the good that I want to do. It's still something that I cannot do on my own. I am still very much dependent on God. And that's what Romans 8 is all about. It's about the victory of the indwelling spirit over indwelling sin. And so he's moving toward that reality of our desperate need for the Holy Spirit. Then in verse 19, he says, For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find in the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. So he's saying that even believers in Jesus do evil. And they have evil in them, but they are not evil. That's a radical change from where we were when we weren't believers in Christ. There has been a real change in us as Christians. We've gone from what the Bible would say is an evil heart to having a new heart. And so fundamentally, in terms of where our heart is, we're no longer evil but we still do evil things and there's still evil in us in terms of the flesh. And so Paul is making some fine distinctions here. And when you really think about how he talks in this passage, you realize this is a really complex argument Paul is making here. And he's making some really, really fine distinctions about what is true of us and what isn't true of us as Christians. 
He goes on in verse 22 to say, For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. So he talks about the law in the members of my body, which is basically a a reference to the fact that indwelling sin or our flesh is very much connected to our physical existence. Not that the body's sinful, but there's a connection there so that indwelling sin very much is at work to try to use our physical desires, our material desires, our temporal realities to lead us into sin. So it's the law of the members of my body that wages war against, he says, the law of my mind. And what does that mean? The law of my mind is the idea that now that I'm a Christian, I have a new heart. The Bible says I have the mind of Christ, that I have a desire to do God's will. That there's a conflict between the law of the members of my body, so to speak, and the law of my mind, which says that life is found in God. Life is found in spiritual realities. So you've got the law of the members of my body, which says life is found in the world and in physical realities. But the law of my mind, the, the law of the mind of Christ, says no, no life is found in internal, inward, spiritual realities. Then he goes on, he completes uh, the chapter by saying, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. So he talks about two things, the law of sin and the law of God. The word law could be also translated rule or principle. He's basically arguing that there, there's a conflict in, in us as Christians. And that conflict is between a principle of life that says that the path for love and happiness is found in distrust and disobedience. That's the law of sin. The path to love and happiness is found in distrust and disobedience. It's found in sin. That, that's where love and happiness is found. The law of God says, no, the path to love and happiness is found in trusting God and obedience to God. And in our minds, in our hearts, in the person we truly are, we know that the law of God is right. But there's still something within us that is leading us towards sin and pulling us towards sin. And he's describing the reality of this conflict in us as Christians. And so what I'd like to do is just highlight some of the ways in which uh, we can apply what Paul says here. Uh, as I said, it's, it's a very, very complex argument, and there are a lot of concepts here that are challenging to really think through, but it's profound in terms of what it says about us as Christians and how helpful it can be if we really think about what Paul is saying here. And so the first thing I just want to highlight, which we've touched on before, is that he's arguing that the foundation of what you do is who you are. And we tend to emphasize what we do. And we don't think very much about who we are. And yet Paul spends a lot of time, as I mentioned before, in chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8, there are only a few commands, but a plethora 
of statements of truth and reality. And then in chapters 12 through 16, he emphasizes what we're supposed to do. But he's saying, this is what's true of you as a Christian. And this is how you are different than what you were before you became a Christian. And this foundation of who you are is what is to be uh, your, your basis of operation as you seek to live in the way that God calls you to live. I've used the idea, illustration of a, a man with a knife before. I just want to use it again in a little different way. Uh, if I were to ask you a question, what is the man with the, the knife about to do? You'd say, well, who is this man with the knife? Or what is this man with the knife? And if I were to tol- tell you that the man with the knife is a surgeon, then you would assume that what he's about to do with the knife is something good. If I were to tell you the man with the knife is a murderer, you would assume that what he's about to do with the knife is something bad. But the reality is um, we associate who someone is or what someone is with what they're likely to do or what they will do. We associate who and what. And that's what Paul is doing here. If you notice in this chapter, he says, I am nine different times. And he says, I, 24 times. He says, me, seven times, and myself, or, or my or myself, seven times. He's, he's describing to us his own personal self-identification. But he's not identifying himself based on simply what he thinks or feels. He's identifying himself based on what God says is true about him. And he's explaining to us how that applies to all of us. That the description of his own struggle is, his, is our, the description of our struggle as well. Later on in Romans 8, 5 through 9, he's going to talk about this struggle in terms of being in the flesh or in the spirit. And so if you read those verses, he'll talk about those who walk according to the flesh and those who walk according to the spirit. And he's basically saying that we are either in the realm of the flesh, where the flesh is actually dominant, or in the realm of the spirit. Now, he doesn't mean that we go back and forth between that. He just means we're either a believer or we're not. And if we're a believer, we're in the realm of the spirit. The spirit is in us and we've been changed. We've been given a new heart. If we're not a Christian, then we're in the realm of the flesh. The flesh is still dominating our lives. And so he's just highlighting the fact that it makes a difference whether or not I am a person who's a believer in Jesus and in the spirit, in the realm of the spirit, or if I'm still an unbeliever in the realm of the flesh. And so who we are is going to make a difference in terms of what we do. Let's say one person A gives money to a homeless person. Person B gives money to a homeless person. How will God look at those two things? It depends on whether or not the person is in the spirit or in the flesh. And I don't mean in terms of his attitude. I mean whether or not he's a Christian or not. That will make a difference because there are two very different fundamental attitudes of heart that that are in different people. Um, so as a Christian, my fundamental attitude of heart is toward God. As an unbeliever, my fundamental attitude is away from God. I'm running away. As a Christian, I am fundamentally running toward God. And what I do is seen in light of who I am. 
And that's why it's not just an issue of is it right or wrong, good or bad to give money to a homeless person. It's even more fundamental is who is this person who's giving money to uh, the homeless person? Uh, Who we are is the most important thing. It's more important than we realize. And so we need to think about that. And that's, that's why the passages on good trees and bad trees are really interesting. When Jesus talks about good trees and bad trees, he says every good tree bears good fruit and the bad tree bears bad fruit, which sounds kind of absolute. Uh, if you're a good tree, does that mean all you're going to bear is good fruit? Or if you're a bad tree, does it mean all you're going to bear is bad fruit? It can come across that way. But what he's saying is, that fundamentally we are one way or the other. And our fundamental heart orientation toward God, we're either toward him or away from him. And so there is a real fundamental difference uh, between people. Um, When C.S. Lewis talks about two types of people, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors, He's not talking about necessarily what they are doing on a day-to-day basis. He's talking about their orientation toward God and who they are in relationship to God. And so there's a, maybe you could say one of the most important things we can ask ourselves before we ask the question, what should I do? I should ask the question, who am I? Who am I? What am I? Even before I get to the question of, What should I do? Secondly, Paul is highlighting the fact in this passage that your sin does not define you. And this is important in light of what we just said. Um, In our day and time, there are different ways in which people will talk that it really depends on how they're looking at what they're saying that makes a difference. Like if you're in an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting and someone gets up and says, my name is so-and-so and I'm an alcoholic. It really matters uh, what they mean by that. If they mean my experience has been that I have been enslaved to alcohol and I've abused alcohol, and that's my struggle, that would be one thing. It'd be another thing if they were saying I identify as an alcoholic. Paul is saying here, if you're a Christian, you should not do that. You should not identify with your sin. That is not who you are. It's not to say that you're not sinning in that way or struggling in that way, but that is not who you are. You're something more fundamental than that, something very different than that. It's like in our day and time, there's this um, controversy among Christians with regard to those who want to say that they are same-sex attracted Christians or that they're gay Christians. And the whole revoice Uh, movement is all about that. It's one thing for me to say I struggle with this sin. And my experience has been that I've failed in this area. That's that's one way that's an appropriate way to talk about it. But for me to identify as that, that that's what I am in terms of a sin, is not the way that Paul talks here At all, if you notice in verse 17, he says, So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Which sounds like a cop-out. That's not me doing it. But it's not a cop-out. He's making a fine distinction between his sin struggles and who he really fundamentally is. 
He says the same thing in verse 20. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. That's why at the beginning of uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians is one of the most messed up churches in the New Testament. They have all kinds of crazy things going on in the church. But Paul starts off by saying this in verse 2, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. He calls them saints. And you think, Paul, haven't you read your letter? Don't you need to edit that? Why did he do that? Because he was talking about what is fundamentally true of them, not all of their sin issues. He was not defining them by their sin. He was defining them in terms of who they are in Christ. And that's a huge thing. Rosaria Butterfield is now a Christian and the wife of a pastor, uh, but she was saved out of the homosexual lifestyle. And she says that she has a really hard time with uh, people who want to identify as gay Christians or same-sex attracted Christians. She says, when you say you are a gay Christian, do you know what you're doing? You're putting on the wrong team jersey. And you're going out on the field and you're playing and you're, you're confusing everybody. You may be a Christian who struggles with same-sex attraction. You may be a Christian who struggles with any matter of sin. But as soon as you embrace an adjectival modifier... And claim that as your identity, you are not identifying fully with Christ. And here's what you're saying. You say you are a gay Christian. You are saying, Holy Spirit, don't touch me there. That's off limits. That's my identity. So she's saying it's actually counterproductive to our holiness and our happiness in God when we identify as sinners in that way. It is not helpful in all kinds of reasons. She'll go on to say in another place that what does it mean if a Christian falls back into an old sin pattern? It means that he is acting against his true nature. It means you're acting against who you truly are. So you become a Christian, you can fall back into old sin, but you're acting against who you are at that point because you are different as a Christian. And so we can ask ourselves in terms of application, am I prone to define myself by my past? And am I prone to define myself by my sin? Or do I define myself in light of who God says I am in Christ? It makes a huge difference in how we fight for, our, for holiness as well as fight for our own joy and peace and happiness in God. The third thing is your suffering does not define you as well. There are those who might say, um, I'm a victim of abuse, or I'm a victim of oppression, or I'm, a, or I'm a cancer survivor. And there are two ways, again, that we can think about that. It's one thing to say, my experience has been this, my history has been this, I've had cancer and I've uh, been healed from it or it's in remission or I was abused uh, or whatever. It's one thing to say that I've experienced that. It's another th- thing to say it's my identity. I identify as 
an, someone who's been abused or oppressed or has had this experience. That's my identity. Um, Paul says that's not the way we should think about things. Yes, we do have horrible experiences. But if we define ourselves by our experience, then that can have all kinds of implications in terms of what we really think about what is true of us. One way I think he talks about this is, obviously when he says in verse 24, wretched man that I am, he's expressing suffering. The, his battle with indwelling sin causes him suffering. He goes on to say, I grieve, I groan, wanting, wanting to be delivered from this suffering of having to battle this sinful aspect of my life. But he'll go on to say, that we have to be careful of defining ourselves even in terms of our suffering because that's what they did to Jesus on the cross. They defined him in terms of his suffering. He's on the cross. He must be cursed by God. That was not true. And so if Jesus can't be defined by his suffering, neither can the followers of Jesus be defined by their suffering. That's why at the end of Romans 8, Verse 31 says, if God be for us, who is against us? But then he goes on to talk about the fact in verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? If there's anything that's going to raise the question in your mind, in my mind, or in the minds of others, whether or not God is for us, it's what we're going through. If we're going through famine, we might think maybe God is not for me. Maybe I'm not a Christian because God isn't loving me like I thought he was supposed to love me. If I'm going through tribulation, distress, persecution, peril, sword, maybe that really defines me. That tells me what's really true of me. My suffering defines me. But he says... Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. My suffering is for the glory of Christ. It's not to define me. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. So he says, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Which means, if I am trusting in Jesus as my Lord and Savior, I'm defined by his slaughter, not mine. He was slaughtered on my behalf. He was killed on my behalf. He was crucified on my behalf. So that Paul could say that I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I'm defined by his death, not my suffering. And, and Paul suffered a lot. He was beaten. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked. He was persecuted in all kinds of ways, but he refused to say, that defines me. That tells me that I'm cursed by God. No. He says, what defines me is what Christ has done for me. And by grace, I've embraced that. And therefore, I'm defined by his suffering. I'm not defined by my suffering. I'm defined by his suffering on my behalf. That's why in the book of Revelation, you've got... The Antichrist talked about in chapter 13 making war with the saints and overcoming them. And a lot of people will look at that on the surface and say, see, must be something wrong with these Christians. They're just getting killed left and right. They must deserve it. 
God must be against them. The Bible says, no, we are the apple of his eye. And he loves us so much that he gave his son for us. So we're not to be defined by our sin. And we're not to be be defined by our suffering either. Um, In our day and time, there's a great push toward victim mentality. Where I need to see myself as simply a victim. When Paul says, no, you need a victor mentality. That no matter what your suffering is, you are victorious. You, You are conquering through Christ all the things that you suffer. Um, I mentioned Frankenstein's monster in that book that was written and how the monster says, you know, I'd be a much better person if people would love me. And it's that same victim mentality that says, you know, if my experience was just different, I'd be a better person. The victim mentality can actually undermine our pursuit of holiness. You know, the reason why I'm just not so holy is because People are so bad around me. And so you can have all kinds of victim mentalities. And that's why Paul says, don't let your suffering and other people's sin against you define you. Um, It's different because of what Christ has done for us. And so we should ask the question, am I ruled by a victim mentality or rather by a victor mentality? Because of Christ, I will conquer through all the things I have to suffer. Well, number four um, is, in light of that, you have a fight and so do those around you. Um, there, Paul highlights this in, obviously, verse 23, when he says, I, I see a different law of the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. He says there's a war going on. This war is what Christians experience. It's not what unbelievers experience. This is a Christian war that goes on. Um, I told on the retreat uh, an illustration about an Indian chief who became a Christian because of the testimony of a pastor. And this pastor would continue to visit the Indian chief and disciple him. And at one point, the pastor came and said, how's it going, chief? And he said, well... Uh, two dogs inside, a small dog and a big dog, always fighting. And the pastor said, well, which dog is winning? And he said, whichever one I feed. And so the reality is there is a real conflict inside of us as Christians. And it does matter which dog we're feeding. Are we feeding our spirit and the spiritual side of us, so to speak, that wants to do the will of God? Or are we feeding our flesh in various reason, in various ways? Uh, Paul talks about this in Galatians 5 when he talks about the, the spirit versus the flesh when he says, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the, the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. It's interesting if you read Jonathan Edwards um, and R.C. Sproul did some commentary on Jonathan Edwards and his idea of why we do what we do. And Jonathan Edwards basically argues that in any given moment, whether or not we sin or not depends on 
the strongest motive or strongest desire at the time. In other words, which dog is stronger at the time? Is our flesh stronger at the moment or is the spirit and our new man, our new heart stronger at the time? Um, R.C. Sproul, in explaining Jonathan Edwards, says, he maintains that a man never chooses contrary to his desire. This means that man always acts according to his desire. Edwards indicates that the determining factor in every choice is the strongest motive present at that moment. In summary, we always choose according to the strongest motive or desire at the time. People may debate this point with Edwards, recalling moments when they chose something they really did not want to choose. To understand Edwards, we must consider the complexities involved in making choices. Our desires are often complex and even in conflict with each other. Even the Apostle Paul experienced conflicting desires, claiming that what he wanted to do, he failed to do, and what he did not want to do, he actually did. Romans 7.15. And so it goes on to talk about the fact that there's a war going on inside of us. And he uses two illustrations, R.C. Sproul does. He says, think about dieting. Okay, you've determined that you're going to go on a diet. You have a big meal, and right after the meal you say, okay, I'm not eating this, 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 or this anymore. And you wait 24 hours, and you're overwhelmed with the desire to eat this, 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 and this. And you find yourself eating this, 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 and this. Why were you so confident right after you ate the meal that you were going to do this? Because at that point, your desire was strong to go on the diet and to do or not do certain things. But those desires fluctuate in intensity. And you find yourself at some point with a greater desire to eat those things than to not eat those things. And so R.C. Sproul talks about the fact that the idea is um, our desires fluctuate from moment to moment. And at one point, we can be very committed to doing something, and the next moment, we're not as committed to doing it. He uses the illustration of a skit by Jack Benny, where a guy comes up. Jack Benny was an old comedian from years ago. A guy comes up and says, okay, your money or your, li- or your life, holds a gun to him. And Jack Benny just kind of stands there like this for a minute. And the guy says, well, what is it, your money or your life? Jack Benny says, wait a minute, I'm, I'm trying to decide. Basically, meaning, which do I want more at this point? Do I want to say, no, I refuse to let you take something from me and lose my life? Or no, I'd rather preserve my life and let you have what you demand. What's the stronger desire? Desire of principle, you should not be robbing me. Or the principle of saving my life. What's the stronger desire? He would say it just depends on that at that moment. And you can actually see that playing out in various ways. There are some people who will give their wallet over very quickly. Others will fight the robber and pay whatever price they have to pay. And so what is the strongest desire at the moment? And so he's describing for us the reality of the conflict that we have and therefore it really does make a difference whether or not we're feeding on the scriptures. It makes a difference whether or not we're praying 
makes a difference whether or not we're fellowshipping with other believers because it's the way we feed the spiritual side, the new man we are, the new heart that God has given us. At the same time, though, I just want to highlight the fact that whereas we need to be aware of our own struggle, we need to realize that everybody else around us that are Christians have the same struggle. And so we might be very quick to say, snap out of it. Do the right thing. And yet we find in ourselves it very difficult to snap out of it and just do the right thing. We're much more likely to acknowledge our own struggle and our tendency to have varying levels of desire and be much more impatient and short and harsh in our judgments of others. And so it does matter how I look at this. It matters in terms of how I love other people, whether or not I'm patient with them in light of their own struggles with indwelling sin, and whether or not I acknowledge that in my own life and my own fight. Well, lastly, the last point is you must grow down in order to grow up. And the point of this is that why does God leave this in us? Why doesn't he just remove all sin and take us to heaven? Well, part of it is the purpose of growth. One of the things that's interesting is that you look at a tree and you see what's above the ground, and many times you don't even think about what's below the ground. But they say that the roots of a tree can grow out and be as large as eight times as the the diameter of the, tr- the tree itself, the leaves and the branches. That if the, the tree is, you know, if you look at it crossways at like 30 feet, it, the roots of it could be eight times that underneath the ground. And the reality is your root system is very important for your fruit system. And so... Uh, The Bible says in different ways that we need to grow down in order to grow up. In order to grow up in praise and worship of God, in order to grow up in faith in God, we need to grow down in humility, down in our understanding of what's really true about us. And so in this passage, Paul talks about, in one sense, being sold into bondage to sin and doing the very thing I hate, knowing that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, evil being present in us. Wretched man that I am, and yet still moving toward worship. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, that he's overcome this, and eventually things will be different, radically different. And so this idea is meant to encourage us that to remember that our ongoing sin issue is meant to humble us and to remind us that when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we celebrate a real Savior for real sinners. That's why we have this ongoing sin battle. And it's also meant to help us love other people because if I really understand the evil that is in me, I won't say things like, I would never. And I won't say things like, I can't believe they did that. Because if I see my own sin and I can actually say what Paul says, I recognize that there is evil in me, then then I'll be much more compassionate, merciful, and patient with others. Um, Someone has said uh, that God leaves in the most godly people some of the most surprising weaknesses. 
If you read this passage, you realize Paul is talking about Paul. He's not talking about Paul 20 years, you know, before this time, but he's talking about Paul, the mature believer. The kinds of things he says to me are really surprising. Paul the Apostle says, I don't fully understand what I'm doing. I'm doing the very thing I hate. That's surprising. Paul is arguably one of the greatest Christians who ever lived, one of the most mature Christians who's ever lived. And yet, Paul would say there's just, there are some surprising weaknesses, surprising evil in me as a mature believer. In the book that we'll look at this afternoon in our small group, a Puritan named Thomas Brooks says, there is the seed of all sins of the vilest and worst sins in the best of men. Which means when I look at Hitler, I should say I'm more like Hitler than I am Christ. But by God's grace, I am radically different than Hitler. And that's what Paul is arguing here when we really think about it. And so the Bible says humility goes before honor. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. So we need to understand these things that we might walk in humility and might have grace. God gives grace to the humble. And so to say there is evil yet in me, in Christ, is actually a way of grace. It's a way of actually growing in my Christian life. Charles Simeon was a pastor in England many years ago. He said... Uh, my Christian life is like a boat. And there are two things that could capsize my boat. One thing would be how great my sin is. The other thing would be my assurance that I'm a Christian. He said, I really need both to keep my boat upright. I need to know just how sinful I am in and of myself so that I will appreciate my Savior. But I also need to know how secure I am in Christ, lest my, the revelation of my sin wipe me out. And so he says, with the sweet hope of ultimate acceptance with God, I have always enjoyed much cheerfulness before men, but I have at the same time labored incessantly to cultivate the deepest humiliation before God. He said, there are but two objects that I have ever desired for these 40 years to behold. The one is my own vileness, and the other is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I have always thought that they should be viewed together. So I think that's what Paul is saying here, is that we need a view of our flesh that says, this is what I was before I was a Christian. This is what my flesh still is, and this is what Christ is saving me from. And this is what I really deserve, is to get what this gets. By God's grace, I get glory and I get grace and I get reward and blessing all because of what Christ has done. So I guess one question and application is, does the revelation of my sinfulness and your sinfulness cause us to groan and worship or doubt and fear? The revelation of our sinfulness as Christians isn't meant to cause us to doubt and fear, but it is meant to cause us to groan And to worship that we have a Savior who will one day save us from this sin completely. So let me just wrap up. 
At the bottom, I mentioned the fact that humility is saying what God says is true of you, whether good or bad, in the face of your sin and your suffering. That actually comes from Isaiah 66, 2, in which God says, But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. To tremble at God's word is to receive whatever he says is true. And that's what true humility is. It's embracing what God says to be true. And then finally, who you are is determined by who you trust. In other words, it's, a, it's fundamentally a heart issue. Who I am is fundamentally a heart issue, not a what I do issue. And that's why it says in John 3, He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. We either have a heart that entrusts ourselves to Jesus or we don't. And that's what defines us. From God's perspective, those are the two things that uh, separate people. It's interesting, if you look at the ways in which the Bible talks about Christians, the word Christian only appears three times in the book of Twice in the book of Acts, once in the book of 1 Peter. Um, Believer is about 12 times. Children, about 14 times. Sons, about 16 times. But saints, 61 times. A saint is not a perfect person. A saint is someone who's been set apart by God. And so the Bible wants us to think about ourselves as saints as those who've been set apart by God. And so this is the way I would define a Christian. As a Christian, you are a saint who is yet to be revealed. Excuse me. You are a saint who is a yet to be revealed son that sins and suffers, but one day will no longer sin or suffer and will be revealed to the glory of the grace of God in Christ. The point is, That we are not defined by our sin, we're not defined by our suffering. What is most fundamental about me is that I've been set apart by God because I've been given a new heart by God. Therefore, I'm a saint who one day will be revealed as a son. It says in Romans 8, one day the sons of God will be revealed to the universe and everyone will see what we truly are so that we're not really defined by our sin, not defined by our suffering. And so it is important that we recognize these things that we're, the world may see us as turkeys, but we're really eagles. The world may see us as the scum of the earth, like Paul said, but we're really sons of the Most High God, daughters of the Most High God. And one day it will all be revealed. Let's pray. Father, we just pray and ask that you would Help us to really think hard about these things and to ask ourselves, who are we? And help us to seek to answer that question in terms of our faith, whether or not we have a real faith in you, Lord Jesus, as our Lord and as our Savior, and that we would begin to see in greater, deeper, richer ways what that truly means to be a person who is in Christ And that you deliver us from all the ways in which we might define ourselves in terms of our sin or might define ourselves in terms of our suffering. And that you'd give us greater hope and greater grace for holiness and greater happiness in you. Father, please help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.